those notes, the prayers that have preceded, the hymns that we have sung from the depths of our hearts, lay down now the foundation for us to hear the word of the living God, which Pastor Keith will come to interpret for you in just a moment. The two scriptures that guide us this morning come from the Gospel of Luke and then Paul's letter to the Colossians. Hear these words from chapter 9 of Luke. Treasure them in your heart and seek to live them out. When Jesus had called the twelve together, he gave them power and authority to drive out all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. He told them, take nothing for the journey. No staff, no bag, no bread, no money, no extra shirt. Whatever house you enter, stay there until you leave that town. If people do not welcome you, leave their town and shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. So they set out. And they went from village to village, proclaiming the good news and healing people everywhere. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all what was going on, and he was perplexed because some were saying that John had been raised from the dead, others that Elijah had had appeared, and still others that one of the prophets of long ago had come back to life. But Herod said, I beheaded John. Who then is this I hear such things about? And he tried to see him. And from Paul's letter to the church at Colossae, we find these words that are instructional and useful for our faith. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly beloved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your heart, since as members of one body, you were called to peace and be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or indeed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. May we pray. Oh, Lord our God, on this day, um, you brought your spirit in full fruition in Pastor Keith's heart. We ask, oh God, that he might step aside as he preaches this morning and allow that to flow through him to us. In Jesus' name, we honor you and we ask your blessing upon Keith as he preaches this morning. Amen. The first part of chapter 3 of of Colossians. It's not going to be on your screen. Just let me just read it to you here. It says, Since then you have been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. So, what we see here, and we've been talking through this as we move through our mission statement, which of course is the mission of the church is to make disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world. Well, today we want to talk about what, what does the lifestyle of a disciple look like, a transformed disciple look like, and then we're going to talk about what does the lifestyle of a transforming church like. And the first thing that we read in Colossians, it says that you have to let your heart be transformed, right? 
And we talked about that a few weeks ago with this conversion idea. That to be a disciple means that you go through an experience where you're converted, where your heart is transformed so that, according to Paul, your mind can be transformed so that your life can be transformed. So think about that. Your heart with conversion, your mind, and then your life. Now, sometimes those things don't match up, right? Sometimes you can know something with your mind and not come out correctly, right? Some of you may find this hard to believe, but, but I think it was last week, uh, I completely like butchered the Lord's Prayer. Yeah, I know. You're, it, it's, it's, I don't think it was at this service, but, I, but it, it, it could have been. You know, sometimes your mind, I know the Lord's Prayer. I mean, I'm almost 28 years old, and I've said the Lord's Prayer many times. And I, I love that some of you are going, what's so funny? <clears throat> A little bit older than that. But I've said the Lord's Prayer in church probably hundreds of times. I'm sure I have. But yet, in the midst of just going through things, sometimes in your mind you can get lost or mess things up or whatever. And I didn't even realize it, you know. I got done saying that Lord's Prayer and I looked down and there were some faces. I thought I was really eloquent or something because people were like. I just thought maybe maybe I did something, you know. Whatever. And then I got home and, and I noticed that, you know, my, my wife was giving me these funny looks. And she's like, okay, you do realize that you completely botched the Lord's Prayer in front of a couple hundred people this morning. And I'm like, I did? I, I didn't. I think we were having a youth staff meeting, and they were, they were telling me, like, you did that, right? I'm like, I didn't know that. You know, sometimes even in your mind, you can know something, but it doesn't quite make it through into your life. You know, Paul writes to us in Colossians 3, he says we're to clothe ourselves with these, with these attributes of, of, of a disciple. He says, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with these things. And I like that, that imagery because to clothe yourselves with what you know in your heart and know in your mind means that that's what people are going to take notice and see. I, I think it was pretty obvious who the members of the choir were, right, when you walked in. Because why? They're wearing their robes. Now, if somebody came in here and they were dressed like an airline pilot, you probably wouldn't be like, so what do you do for a living? <clears throat> you would just know. People can tell a lot about us by, by the clothing that we wear. And in that same imagery, Paul says, these are the things that you're to clothe yourself with as a disciple of Christ. <clears throat> this is what people should see when they look at your life. And then we have this list. And I was noticing this morning that as I'm looking through this list again, there's a mixture between things that we know and feel and things that we therefore do. And what I want to do real quickly is to take us through this list and, and, and admonish us and encourage us to clothe ourselves with these things. So he says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Since as members of one body, we are called to peace and be thankful. And I like how he says, let the peace of Christ rule. It's passive. We want to clothe ourselves with these things. It's not about like just, you know, working up the energy to do it all. It's really in, in a real sense, letting God's peace wash over us, letting these things happen. And then we'll see what takes place. So first and foremost, compassionate. We're to be compassionate people. Now recognize, compassion is not something that you do. Compassion is something that you feel. Compassion is, is, is an emotional response, something that you think, something that you feel in your heart. And I think that's part of a disciple because it's not just enough as a Christian to go off and do something nice for someone or to meet someone's need. If we're truly to be followers of Jesus, we have to, to exude that compassion. We have to feel it in our, in our guts Notice that the Gospels tell us that Jesus was compassionate. He had compassion on the crowds, and he healed them all. He had compassion on the people who were hungry. Jesus didn't just come down to meet these random needs and do a job. He put his heart into it because of how he felt. Now, 
would you consider yourself a compassionate person? You know, there's a difference between being compassionate and being nice. A nice person is judged by solely what they do. A compassionate person begins with what's going on in their heart. And I would say this. If you don't have compassion in your heart for lost people or for those who are in great need, then you have not yet experienced that transformation of your heart because Christ had that compassion. And your discipleship will only go so far because when you don't have compassion on someone, what you will do for them or to help them is only going to go a short distance. And I think you know what I'm talking about. You'll do the very minimum requirement when you don't have compassion. But when you do have compassion, when you truly have empathy for what another person is going through and your heart cares about them, you will stop at nothing to meet those needs. So compassion is what we feel. Kind is what we do. We're to be kind. We're to clothe ourselves in kindness. Is that an attribute that you would say other people would describe about you? Do you exude kindness? Now, We don't need to have a lesson on what kindness means. I think everyone knows it, but basically kindness is just simply being nice. See, it matters what kind of people we are. It doesn't just matter what we know. It matters who we are. It matters what we do. It matters what comes out of us. And there is a lack of kindness just in this general world, don't you think? People just have lost that, haven't they? Maybe I'm just getting old. I don't know what it is. But it seems to me like the way we speak to each other, the way we interact with one another, you know, it's, it's, there, there's kindness that's lacking. I heard, I heard a guy once say that you can tell if a person is nice or kind, not by how he treats his family or those around him, but how he treats the waiter, how he treats the person who serves him, how he treats someone who's there that, that's, that uh, has been hired to serve him in some way. If you treat that person with kindness, that's a pretty good indication that you have that. We're to clothe ourselves with that. So we feel compassion, and then we become kind. Humble. Humility. This is an attribute we're to clothe ourselves with. Now again, humbleness is not something that you do. It's something that you feel. It's something that you think. So what does it mean? I had this conversation with my daughter a couple weeks ago in our, our family devotions. I assigned her. I said, I want you to go through the, book, the, the Bible and find out what the word humility means. And sometimes I think we can think that humility is, is about like thinking of ourselves in a poor way. Like if someone says, oh, you did a great job, a humble person says, oh, no, I didn't, you know, or, or, or you look nice today, oh, no, I don't. <clears throat> you know, humility is not thinking less of yourself. I think I heard a preacher say this one time. It's thinking of yourself less. It's thinking of yourself less, not thinking less of yourself. A humble person isn't one who has a, a false view of themselves in a negative way. It's just one who doesn't consider themselves that much. And as a disciple, that's really what we're to be. We're not to be concerned with ourselves or what other people think of us or, or whether we have everything we're to have or all this kind of stuff or how awesome we are. A disciple is one whose primary concern is those needs of other people. We're to clothe ourselves with humility so that we can be gentle. You see, gentleness is something that you do. Gentleness is how you interact with one another. It's, it's, it's exuding peace. It's taking care of each other. It's not treating each other harshly. And we can only do that truly when we're humble, when we understand that others are more important than we are. Then we can treat them with gentleness. And of course then, moving on to forgiveness. Christians and disciples are to be people who are quick to forgive, who are people who recognize what Christ has done for them and then in turn bring that out. You cannot be a disciple of Jesus Christ 
and a bitter, grudge-holding person. The two things are inconsistent. As disciples, we are to model forgiveness. We are to, to let our gentleness and our humility... No, you can't forgive someone without humbling yourself in some way. And consequently, I would add that you can't refuse to forgive someone without somehow thinking you're better than they are. You see, when you refuse to forgive someone, that's the opposite of humility because what you're in essence saying is, I would have never done that. I'm a better person than they are. See, but when you learn to humble yourself and treat each other with gentleness, forgiveness will just flow through that. Because forgiveness is something that you do. You forgive that person. And also, we're called to be thankful. Clothe ourselves with thankfulness, with gratitude. You know, the opposite of of, of thankfulness, I would say, is bitterness. It's impossible to be bitter and thankful and have gratitude at the same time. Think about that in your own life. Think about the moments when you've been most grateful and most thankful. Bitterness just flies away, doesn't it? But when we hold on to things, when we feel like we're owed something, when we feel like we've been mistreated, when we feel like we're not, we're not given what's, what's due to us, you know, we're, we're not thankful in those moments. And as disciples of Christ, when the world looks at us, we need to be clothed in thanksgiving. You know, it's amazing that when, when we have gratitude, how many petty little, dis, you know, disagreements go away when we recognize how much God has done for us, how grateful we are and how thankful we are. And of course, we're to be gospel-centered. If you see what he writes there, he says, let the message in verse 16, let the message of Christ dwell richly as you teach and admonish one another. That message of Christ is the center of everything. The gospel is the center. We are to be centered completely on the saving work of Jesus Christ, preaching that message, letting it dwell in us richly, not just letting us have a a list of nice things to do, but recognizing the power that comes from preaching the gospel, the power that comes from sharing that message. That needs to be something we're clothed with too. It's not enough just to say, well, be nice, gentle, kind, and humble, and forgiving, all that. If we don't attach that to the reason why, then we've, we've robbed it of its power. It's all about the gospel. It's all about the message of who Jesus is. That's where the power comes from. And we're to be celebratory. As we worship, he says, come together and sing psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. When we come to worship, when we open those hymnals, when we read the words on the screen, when we see the choir, everything that we do, this is a party, you guys. This is a celebration of our Lord Jesus Christ and who he is and his mighty, awesome power. And when we ponder anew what the Almighty can do, that is something to celebrate. And that's what disciples do. We're transformed to celebrate, to party, to have a good time. With the, God, with the power of the gospel on our lips. Also, with worship. What is worship? It's just declaring the truth about who God is and submitting our lives to that. It's singing songs to our Lord, singing our praises, singing our prayers. These should be the things that we are clothed with, but not just on Sunday mornings. I'll tell you something. I never put this on unless I'm in a church, either to preach the word or to take pictures. You know? And... and <clears throat> But I'm not, this isn't like my worship outfit. My worship outfit is, you know, whatever I put on for that day because it's not about the clothes I wear. It's about who I am as a person. 
and my heart to worship the living God. So that isn't a Sunday morning or a Wednesday night thing for a believer in Christ. That's something that we wear every day. We should be worshiping God no matter what we're doing. Can you worship God when you're, when you're at your cubicle processing information? Can you worship God when you're in a classroom writing down information or, or, or reading a book? Can you worship God when you're, when you're running errands for your family or when you're, when you're fixing something with your hands? That's an act of worship. You're to clothe yourselves with that, with all wisdom. I love when he talks about wisdom. What does it mean to be wise? Again, we're moving from things that you feel to things that you do. Wise is basically understanding what the truth is and knowing how to interpret it. Knowing in your life how to interpret the truth of your experiences and what those things look like. And there's some of us in here that have such great wisdom because we've got many years of, of life experience and, and life's power. And I want to tell you something right now. This is sort of a little bit of an aside. The, those of us that are younger... We need, those of you that are older, we need your wisdom. <clears throat> we need to know what you know. I, I had a meeting with a, with a young man recently. He says, he says Keith, I'm just kind of struggling with finding my way in life. I'm not sure what I should do. I don't, I'm, I'm kind of stuck. And the advice I gave to this younger brother in the Lord was this. I said, I want you to seek out four or five, four or five men that are 20 to 30 years older than you. And I want you to take them out to coffee or supper or whatever, sit down with them and ask them the question, what do you wish, what do you know now in your life that you wish you knew when you were my age? It's a powerful question. I remember sitting down with the older pastor one time and I asked him that question and he gave me this great advice and, and, and great mindset and it was not what I thought it was going to be. It wasn't, oh, well, here's the best way to preach a sermon or here's the best way to run a small group. It was all about, remember that God loves you, Keith no matter how many people come to your church or how many people leave your youth group or how mad somebody is at you, you know, keep that in the first foremost of your mind. I mean, the wisdom that, that, that we're called to share with one another, it's part of being a disciple. I'm part of this discipleship pathway committee that we formed uh, with the Healthy Church Initiative. One of our prescriptions, as you remember, one of the things that we had consultants come and tell us we need to do as a church is to create this, this discipleship pathway that is designed to take people from, from the birth to the grave, people who've never known Jesus, to people who've known Jesus for many years, and create this visible, clear, simple pathway of discipleship. I'm going to say this. If anybody else is on my committee here, you'll agree. We got the hardest job. We got the hardest job. Pastor Mike's like, you don't know my job. It's pretty hard, too. Oh, we've all got hard jobs because they're tough. But, but our group is tasked with this tremendous, this tremendous process that we're to, to come together. And one of the things that we learned as we talked about this, was that we want our discipleship process at First United Methodist Church to be intergenerational. Because we want, as the Bible says, older women instructing younger women, older men instructing younger men. That's the biblical pattern for how wisdom is passed on. And you see, we can lose something if, if, if we can fall into this trap as, as, as sometimes we, we, we lend ourselves to in churches where we just segregate ourselves based on our life stage or our age. You know, we have a, a, a young adults and an older this and a young women who like to knit class and a old men who like to, you know, build pots or whatever. I, don't, I mean, we can kind of do that in the church world. But when we do, we, we don't always get to share our wisdom. We're called to do that. We're called to share that wisdom so we can be instructive and help one another. As disciples, our job is to make other disciples, to help instruct. And above all, the scripture says, 
wrap all these things in love. They're bound together in love. Now notice, every single one of those things is something that you feel or something that you do, except for when it comes to love, because love is both. Love is something that you feel, and it's also something that you do. It's something that all of these other things that you're wrapped with are bound together by. Now, why do we do all these things? Not because, you know, you're just supposed to. Not so you can have an awesome church. Not so you can have success in your career and wonderful relationships. Not, and all those things may come to you, but they may not. But the number one reason, the reason why we're to do these things according to the scripture is because of what Paul writes in, chapter, in verse 12. He says, you as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves. You do these things because God has done them. We experience, we clothe ourselves because that's who God is and that's what God has done for us. God has been compassionate to me. God has been kind to you. He's been humble as he came out of heaven and took upon human flesh and died upon a cross. The ultimate act of humiliation, not counting himself as better, but counting himself as the worst. We're gentle because Christ was gentle. We forgive because Christ forgave us. We're thankful because Christ was thankful. We're gospel-centered because Jesus was gospel-centered. We celebrate because he celebrated. We worship because he worshiped. We share our wisdom because he shared his. We instruct because he has instructed. And we love because he loved us. It's not about a plan or a program. It's about who God is. And when we understand that, When we're converted to that, our minds are transformed and therefore our lives are transformed. Now, if this is all true of individuals, what does it mean for a church? What is the life of a transforming church like? And I realize, and Mike shared this with me this morning, he says, you've got two whole sermon series in this talk this morning. So you just did series one. Let's do series two, all right? What does the life of a transforming church look like? If, hey, we're supposed to go make disciples, what does that look like for a church? And I I chose this text from Luke's gospel, (laughs) to demonstrate what it looked like in Jesus' day. Because this is the story of when Jesus sent out his disciples to go make disciples. And if you look at what he told them to do and what he sent them to do and what they did, I think it's all right there. Now, what happened was Jesus grabs his disciples and he says, now you go out and do all the things, in a nutshell, that I've been doing. Everything you've seen me do, now it's your turn. Go do it. Bye. And here's the great thing. They went out and it actually happened. They did it in such a way that even the, the, the Roman leaders and the Jewish leaders were like, what? I thought we got rid of these guys. Is this John the Baptist? Is this Elijah? What's going on? I got to find out about this because it actually worked. Now, if it worked for them, is it going to work for us? See, one of the things we need to realize is we have the same job these disciples did, and we have the same power. You see, transforming churches recognize this. They are empowered by God. There's power in the gospel. There's power through doing the work of the kingdom of God. It's not our abilities that matter. It's God's power. And when God calls you to do something, he then gives you the power to do it. But doesn't mean that it's always going to work the way you think it will. Remember, he told the disciples, when you enter a town, if they don't receive your message, shake the dust off your feet as a testimony to them and move on. Because they may not receive it, but somebody else will. And some of you have experienced that. 
you felt the power of God, but you've gone into the world and it hasn't worked out the way you wanted it to and you've become frustrated. And instead of moving on, you've stayed put and just, just given up. God will give you the power. But it doesn't always mean that it's going to go the way you want it to go, but it will go the way he wants it to go. Transforming churches are empowered by God, which therefore means that transforming churches are dependent on God's power. That's why we do all this prayer stuff, because we're depending on God. We, we could be sitting in a room strategizing, but we think it's important to pray. Because we recognize that the success of our campaign or the success of our processes or the success of our mission is not dependent on how talented we are. If it was, this thing would be done from the beginning. Now, these disciples were not the best of the best. They were not the biggest stars of their day. They were not the most talented, educated, proven people. They were the nobodies of their day. They were the uneducated fishermen. They were the tax collectors. They were those that nobody else would have chosen for their team. But Jesus chose them, said, go out and do the work that I've done, but don't just try to be clever. Depend on me to do the work through you. And churches that continue to be transforming churches that make disciples are the ones that recognize that it's not about them and their abilities. Therefore, they depend on God's power. That's what we're called to do. Churches that are transforming meet practical needs. This is important. Our our hearts are transformed. We're converted. Our minds are transformed. We're renewed by the power of the Holy Spirit. Our lives are transformed. But the work of the kingdom of God is to take care of the lost in this world and the needy. Because Jesus has compassion. And we do as well. He had compassion on those who were hungry, so he fed them. He had compassion on those who were sick, so he healed them. He had compassion on those who needed the gospel message of forgiveness, so he preached it. Notice the preaching of the gospel is considered by Jesus to be a practical need, isn't it? Oftentimes we sit in church circles where they say, well, we don't don't want to convert people, we just want to meet their practical needs. Converting someone to the gospel is a practical need. But it doesn't just stop with firing a Bible verse off at somebody and doing a drive-by evangelism thing. Because remember, we're clothed with compassion. We're clothed with humility. We're clothed with wisdom. I I, I saw this so clearly a few years ago when I I was part of a small group, an intergenerational small group, by the way. And and we we had a a woman in our group who was a, a, a young single mother who lived in a trailer and drove a beat-up old Chevy Chase European vaca- or vacation station wagon. You know what I'm talking about? And it was beat-up. She called this thing Matilda. It was, it was this giant, nasty station wagon. And, and this woman was college-educated. She was a brilliant woman, but life had thrown her a few, a few wrenches, and she found herself waiting tables for a living, trying to raise two girls and a boy with very little income. And, and she came to us one day and said, hey, I just wanted to see if you guys can help me out. My car broke down. I don't have enough money to get it fixed. And I was wondering if you guys could help me get a ride to work once in a while. So some of us in our small group got together one night and we were talking and, and we said, hey, we're going we're gonna to try to pitch some money together and try to get this car fixed. Would anybody be willing to donate 50 bucks, 100 bucks or 20 bucks or whatever? And one of the guys in our group was a, he's a manager of a car dealership. And he said, you know what? I got our service department. I'll get these guys to help. We'll get this thing fixed, and we'll, we'll take care of her car for her. And, and, and we thought, praise the Lord, right? Well, then one of the other women in our group, who was also a young single mother, but who was a little bit more financially independent and successful in her life, she, she said, well, you know what? No, I'm not going to donate money to that. She says, I've, I've got a car that she can just have. 
Now, Mike talked about a few, a few months ago in here the greatest gift he ever received uh, from his father-in-law, besides, you know, Teresa, of course, was this uh, Lexus ES300. Well, that wasn't the first time I'd heard of somebody giving someone else a Lexus. You should have seen her face when we picked her up to take her to work, but instead of going to work, we stopped at the car dealership and said, oh, we just got to pick up something from our friend. Walked inside, and there the small group was, and there inside the car or inside the showroom with a big red bow on it was this beautiful Lexus white car that had been detailed and ready to go. And our small group standing there, and we walked in, and the keys were handed to this woman. And I remember the look on her face, and she cried, and she literally said, I have never had anything nice ever in my life. And I felt like we were ready to have church right there. You see, when you have been impacted by the gospel, you don't care if you get to give your car to somebody. This woman wasn't like, oh, my car, oh, no. She was thrilled to give it. You couldn't have stopped her, she told me later. It was one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen in my life. Consequently, that wouldn't have happened, by the way, if our whole small group was just, you know, 30-year-olds with kids. Wouldn't have happened. You see, we're to meet practical needs. That's church. You understand what I'm saying? That's how it works. Transforming churches are also missional. Now, I don't just mean mission trips and mission projects. I mean this. Jesus and the disciples did not plant a flag on the ground or a tent on the ground and say, hey, everybody come to us if you want some gospel. Rather than that, Jesus took that group that was with him. He trained them. He equipped them. He empowered them. And then what did he do? He sent them. He said, go into the world. Do the kingdom work. Make people disciples. Bring them back into the kingdom. That's what a transforming church looks like, people. We're going we're gonna to have a place, whether it's here, whether it's out there. <clears throat> but make no mistake, our facilities will be beautiful and will be more than adequate. But our mindset can never be, hey, here we are, everybody. Come see how awesome we are. Let's draw them in. No, we are drawing ourselves in to do the equipping work so that therefore we can then be sent out. Then they may come back to us so that they can be equipped and then be sent out. You see, and it just kind of goes together. It's called the church. It's called the kingdom of God. And that's our mission. That's what we're called to do. And by God's power, it will happen. Why? Because we are God's chosen people, holy and beloved. This is our mission. May God bring it to life in Jesus' name. Let's pray. Lord God, Father, we pray that you would give us the power that comes from the gospel, that all of our work, Lord, will be gospel-centered, gospel-driven, so that the world may know who you are. Father, we clothe ourselves as individuals, and we clothe ourselves as your church, ready for this work. In Jesus' name, amen.